it's actually nothing scientific. This is just uh, anecdotal proof from what I'm doing and what works and how I created the world championship speech and kind of took the philosophy and now I'm applying it to this. And when I was in high school, the only time in my life where I said enough is enough, where I was the quiet, shy kid, I was on the sidelines. I was always second string in all the sports. I love sports, but I wasn't good enough to play and I wanted to be in the game, but I wasn't doing what it took to get in the game, to have my coaches want me in the game. I would only get in the game if we were way ahead or way behind. You know, that's the only time Darren played. Welcome to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where paradigms shift. Impossible becomes I'm possible, and weirdos are exposed for who they really are, pure geniuses. With your host, who walked from Chicago to L.A. just because he could, the one and only Mr. Weirdo, a.k.a. Rashid Huda. Hey, Darren, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Rashid. Hey, uh, thank you for accepting my invitation because, as you know, you are my hero. <laughs> uh, I've known you at uh, 17, 18 years now, and you were the first world champion of public speaking that I met. So let's get started. And let me ask you this What does weirdo mean, or what does it mean to you when you see the phrase embrace your inner weirdo? Well, to me, what it is, it's being authentic to who you are and not being afraid of it. And I think a lot of people have a mask on. They want to look professional. They want to look good. And that's the problem. Like, it's hard to connect. So, you know, with you and I doing presentations and uh, I train speakers, I'm a motivational speaker as well. The only way I can connect with my audience if, is if I'm true to myself. I can say the right words, but unless I'm connected to myself, my inner weirdo, as you say, uh, look, I, I'm a dork. And when I try to look too polished and too professional, mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't look real. It doesn't look authentic. So if I want to truly impact my audience and if you want to stand out, I mean, nobody stands out copying someone else. Uh, quick story, Rashid. I don't, here's one story I don't think you've heard when okay. um, I live in Las Vegas and I had a friend who knew someone who was in the Legends show. The Legends show is uh, basically some impersonators who are impersonating uh, Elvis, Lady Gaga, um, all the big stars. So they're impersonating. Right. So they're an actor. They're really talented. They've got a great voice and they look the part. They play the part. And that's why they call it the legends. Now, you could never produce a show like this because it would cost way too much if you had the real people. So what my friend told me was um, their friend, who was one of the actors, one of the impersonators, uh, did this and loved what they did. However, they couldn't pay their bills mm. because legends get paid millions. And that's why they stand out. And that's why right. impersonate them and copy them and follow them. And, uh, you know, we have all these Elvis people here in Vegas and there's nothing wrong with that. But you're never going to make the millions copying someone else, modeling someone else. And so I remember hearing that I was like, yeah, that makes sense. They're not a legend. They're imitating a legend. And I think if we want to stand out, if we want to help people, if we want to build our business, we can't look like everyone else. We've got to be that weirdo. And I think there's a little weirdo in everyone. Just most people aren't willing to admit it. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. For those who don't know who Darren LaCroix is, 
give us a two-minute version of who Darren LaCroix is. Well, thanks for asking that. I mean, I was always an introvert growing up. I was a shy, quiet kid. Uh, I never spoke up because early on in my life, I would embarrass myself. I would say something dorky. So I figured it would be better to shut up than to stand out. And so I didn't believe, I didn't have the confidence. I was a mommy's boy growing up, so I had a lot of insecurities. And I loved, loved, loved seeing people laugh. And my brother and cousin, they were the class clowns in my family, and they would be the ones having everybody rolling and laughing at parties. And I remember I was about eight years old. Uh, I was at the kids' table, you know, the rickety kids' table, uh, big Polish uh, festival, uh, fest festivities with the family, holiday celebration. And my, my cousin and brother had everybody laughing. And I have these aunts that are twins, and they have this hum uh, harmonious laugh. And when they laugh, it's like, fwah, 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 and you can't not laugh. It's hysterical. <laughs> and I remember as an eight-year-old, I just wanted to be a part of that. So I stood up and I, I threw out a punchline and I hushed my whole family. And I slid back into my seat, embarrassed, and I said, I will never, ever try to be funny again. And I didn't. I found my place. You know, there's a lot of things you can learn. Humor, being funny is not one of them. So I thought... And so I kind of put that dream away and through college, I discovered I loved business. So I went to four years of business school and after uh, I graduated, I went out for the American dream and I, I invested in a Subway sandwich shop, leveraged all the credit I had. And um, I was so excited. I was gonna be a multiple store owner. And uh, I just was so excited because Subway was new to the area. So I was a, in front of the curve. I was catching the wave. And about a year and a half later, uh, it didn't go so well. <laughs> And Subway at that point had a 98% success rate. And I was in that 2%. And it was, I really had to mess up. Uh, I learned a ton of valuable lessons and I'm thankful now for that experience. But at the time it was painful. So one of my buddies saw me uh, down and depressed and he gave me a motivational tape of Brian Tracy, a great speaker, if you don't know him, amazing, brilliant expert who studies self-development probably more than anybody on the planet. And I'm driving down the road and he asks a question and he says, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I was like, if I wouldn't fail? I was like, I'd be a comedian. How cool would that be? Make people laugh for a living? That would be the ultimate. All of a sudden that little voice of reason on my shoulder said, but you're not funny. <laughs> but that wasn't the question. The question was, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? So I decided in that moment, thank God I was at such a low point that I'm just gonna try it once, just once, because I couldn't live with the regret of wondering what if. What, what if Brian Tracy was right? I could live with never doing it again, but I couldn't live wondering. So I went to a little comedy show in Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, I built up all the courage I could, because I want to ask advice from someone who is where I wanted to do, because right. the only thing worse than regretting not doing it is doing it half-heartedly, not actually going all in. So if you're going to go all in, you got to get advice from someone who is where you want to be. And so I literally uh, walked up to him and I said, hi, my name is Darren. I want to try this. What do I need to do? And he asked me a question. He said, are you funny? I said, no. He said, good. I'm like, good? What do you mean good? <laughs> 
And he went on to explain that if you took someone like my cousin or brother who are very funny naturally and uh, around friends and family, if you handed them a microphone and you put them in front of 100 strangers, they couldn't make them laugh. Mm. That's a different skill set. Gotcha. And he said, but that one can be learned. Like what? He handed me an ounce of hope and he said two things. Number one, go get the book. Book? There's a book about stand-up comedy? I never thought of that. And he said, number two, you got to go to open mic nights and watch other people just starting out. Well, that made sense because when I told my friends and family, they compared me to Seinfeld. Someone just thinking about it to someone at the top of their profession. I get it logically because you're thinking he's funny, you're not. But it's not fair. If you have a big dream and uh, if you're afraid to embrace your inner weirdo and chase that dream, I'm here to tell you I am so thankful I did. And so I went and got the book. And uh, two days later, I went to a little comedy club outside of Fenway Park called Stitches. And it was an open mic night, taking the advice, going to watch people just starting out. And I walked in and the sticky floor, I could smell the steel beer. It was cool. And I watched people go up for their first time and what? They were horrible. And I thought I could do that. (laughs) It literally inspired me. I was like, I can do that. Uh, So I decided I'm going to try this. I'm going to do the book, read the book, go through the exercises. I went to Stitches every Sunday night for two months. And on April 26, 1992, that was my night. Now, as the mama's boy, the quiet, shy guy, I had chickened out of everything in my life. And I said, you know what? This time I'm not. This time I'm not. And I brought some of my friends uh, with me and I told them, I said, okay, I don't care if I cry or whine or scream, you make sure I go up there because I'm never going to attempt this again. And so (laughs) so nervous. And I know, Rashid, you know the story, but for people listening, if you haven't heard the story, I was telling a joke about Dr. Goddard's first rocket launch in history in my hometown, and it only went 41 feet high. But I was so nervous that when I was talking about it, what I was saying and what I was doing with my body language was not in sync at all. And so I said the rocket took off and it went vertically. And I motioned horizontally and I realized I messed up. And I said, ah, shoot. And for one split second, I became my authentic weirdo. But second, I became myself and they laughed. And I I was looking around like, what? Like that wasn't the plan, but but (laughs) it was the result. Right. so that was the only laugh I got that night. As I walked off stage, this man put his arm around my shoulder, one of the other comics, and he said, don't worry, man, it's just your first time. And I remember thinking, don't worry, it's just my first time. Did you see what I did? I, I got a laugh. Uh, are you kidding me? I'm the king of comedy. I'm going to figure this out. And it was a weirdo thought. Right. In that five minutes of time, I had one thing that worked. If I could get rid of everything that didn't work and figure out how to reproduce the one thing that did, I could do this. And I've been doing stand-up and speaking ever since that night. And it was, you know, when I looked at it, when kids grow up, myself included, I want to be a professional athlete. But when I when I step back and think about it, I'm like, you work your whole uh, high school, college years, uh, every day, practicing, working out, and a best, a great career is four or five years. And when I thought about this, I'm like, yeah, I'm not funny, but George Burns is a hundred 
and still doing this. I'm like, I don't care if it takes me 10 or 20 years. I'm I'm gonna figure this out. And so definitely a weirdo thought. I didn't put any time frame on myself. I just said, I'm gonna do it. And I never looked back and it was scary. I wanted to quit many times. I bombed many, many, many times. But now because of being a weirdo, I get to do what I love to do for a living. Rashid? Now, what do we talk about for the next 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and and one thing that I did learn that I think is appropriate to, you know, your your listeners and your subject, which I love your subject, love, love, love your subject. And I think more people need to. And I remember, like, I did the stand-up comedy thing. And along my path, I discovered speaking. And I learned the habit from my mentor, Vinny, who said, never turn down stage time. So I learned mm-hmm. the number one habit, stage time, stage time, stage time. Right. And that's how I discovered Toastmasters. And uh, when I looked at what they told me I needed to do, I was smart enough to know that I didn't know. And then I was willing to do the work that most people aren't willing to do. You want right. to be a weirdo? Like, do the work that most people aren't willing to do, and you become a weirdo. And you will do what most people don't do because you did work. And so when I found Toastmasters, I was like, what? These people are warm, encouraging, and sober. Like, <laughs> this is awesome. But think about it. You know, in the, in the stand-up comedy world, there's only three open mic nights in the city of Boston in a week. And you've got a hundred wannabe comedians vying for those three nights in those three clubs. There's not enough spots. So if I got to get stage time, I got to get creative. So when I found Toastmasters, I was like, here's a place I can screw up during the day. Comedy clubs are only open at night. I could fail twice a day. (laughs) I mean, that's a weirdo thought, but that's what mentors said. And final uh, point of this, fast forward to finding Toastmasters and finding NSA, the National Speakers Association. I went to my first convention, I think it was 1996 in Washington, D.C. And this was the first convention. I I like leveraged it all, my credit cards. And now there's 2,000 people. Now, here's what you got to understand. I have a lot of friends still who I started out with in the comedy world. But one of the things is I never felt like I was one of the gang. I never felt like mm. I was a comedian. I kind of felt out of place because when I discovered speaking, I thought, okay, corporate, here's more who I am. And, and I, I love my comedy friends, but to me and who I am, it kind of drained my soul to be in a comedy club six or seven nights a week. It, it's it's a fun place if you go once every six months, but when right. you're in that environment, it, it takes a special person to, to be there and thrive in that. And to me, it just wasn't who I was. So I did both for many years, but when I went to my first NSA convention, um, I remember the opening day and it, the opening night was a big pomp and circumstance. So I'm in a room with 2000 other speakers. And when I'm in that room, I'm starting to notice things and notice people that, Rashid, you'll love this. I started noticing like they're weirdos just like me. They're weirdos. This is like an association of weirdos. This is where the weirdos go. (laughs) By uh, the opening keynote speaker was uh, Captain Gerald Coffey, who was a prisoner of war, gave an amazing keynote speech. Ken Needham played the piano and, and wrapped it up beautifully with an improv song. And it was just powerful. And I remember I walked out 
of the hotel convention center and I walked into the back where the pool was with a pad of paper and I kind of jumped the fence and I sat down by the pool and I wrote my mother a seven page letter saying that for the first time in my life I found home. For the first time in my life, I felt at home. These are my people. These are my fellow weirdos. So if you're a weirdo, embrace your weird inner weirdo and then find your weirdo pack. Find the people who do what you want to do, be what you want to be, and surround yourself with them. It's critical to your own success. But if you never embrace your inner weirdo, you're never going to find your herd. You're going to right. never find those, those peeps. That is absolutely true. So let me ask you this. What is your definition of success? Hmm. I think it's being authentically yourself in every moment, which is not always easy, especially for, you know, Mr. Introvert, you know, at a party and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's success because I think that is going to lead you to connecting with people and connecting with people is going to lead you to the right people that you can help that can maybe be a customer or a client, maybe a friend, uh, maybe a spouse, you know? So I think it's challenging and sometimes more challenging than others, but I, I look at that as being authentic. And when I get that as a compliment, uh, that's one of my favorite compliments, you know? So that would be the short, quick answer. Great. So tell me about your 17 minutes project. Yeah, well, one of my being authentic, if I'm a truly an inspirer, uh, I, was, I was teaching a workshop for some Toastmasters in Vancouver, Canada, after I won the world championship. And I was there talking and teaching what I learned from my mentors and my coaches. And there was time for a Q&A section. This young guy, he's maybe 23 years old, he goes, all right, it's cool you won the world championship and thank you for being here, but but what are you doing now? Like you're a motivational speaker, what are you doing now? And I just love that question because I think a lot of motivational speakers, they achieve something and then they teach it forever and but they're not living that life worth watching. Mm. And I love that my, my church did a, a segment on that and I love that idea that live a life worth watching. Not, not just what you accomplish, but what are you doing today? I want to see the struggle. I want to see you strive. So I had a, uh, a mentor um, at a mastermind sit down and uh, he said, okay, what's your big crazy dream? So this was after I won the world championship. We were in a local restaurant here, pub style restaurant called BJ's and we're in a booth and he's going around, he gets to me and I sheepishly said when he got to me I was like well you know ever since I've little I was I lived for true life movies I had to see every one of them in fact when Rudy came out it was 1993 I started stand up in 92 well I cl clung on to that character because he wasn't good enough wasn't smart enough had dyslexia um, all these challenges and I could relate because what I was going through uh, and it motivated me. It inspired me. And, you know, what would Rudy do? He, he didn't just fall down. He got beat down and he still got up and he got beat down again. And he still got up. And that's what I honestly felt when I was doing stand up. So I said, well, I've been telling the story from stage, but I thought, what if they made a movie out of my story? And then I said, but who am I to have a movie made about me? And my mentor slammed his hands down, got right up in my face, and he goes, who are you not to? <laughs> I was like, huh. 
and plop, it was like, you know, all of a sudden, like, poop, I, I just uh, dropped an egg, and my dream was born, and now I had to do it. So that was uh, nine years ago, and it took me about eight years, and I sat down and uh, learned how to write a movie script. I had no idea how to do that. So it took me about eight years to write, and now I'm in the process, as you know, trying to sell it to Hollywood. So I'm doing these daily Facebook Lives, and the hashtag is hashtag 17 minutes to your dream. And I wrote a book about this, about literally going for something that I have no idea how it will happen. A lot of faith, a lot of prayer, and a lot of rejection. And if I'm truly a motivational speaker, how dare I tell other people to stretch themselves if I'm not actively stretching myself? So I don't know how it's, as of now, I have a lot of leads. I've followed up on all of them. Nothing is solid yet. I haven't sold it yet, but today I'm gonna do my 17 minutes uh, to get one step closer because you don't know which minutes matter. Why 17 minutes? Uh, great question. Uh, I get that one all the time, and I, I love that the curiosity of that. Um, it's actually nothing scientific. This is just uh, anecdotal proof from what I'm doing and what works and how I created the world championship speech and kind of took the philosophy, and now I'm applying it to this. And when I was in high school, the only time in my life where I said enough is enough where I was the quiet, shy kid. I was on the sidelines. I was always second string in all the sports. I love sports, but I wasn't good enough to play. And I wanted to be in the game, but I wasn't doing what it took to get in the game, to have my coaches want me in the game. I would only get in the game if we were way ahead or way behind. You know, that's the only time Darren played. And so my dad took a picture of me in the sidelines. I remember getting so frustrated with him, like, Dad, don't be taking pictures of me in the sideline. He's like, Darren, you're never in the game. True, but don't take a picture of me in the sideline. I don't want to remember that. And so finally, senior year, I said, enough is enough. I said, you know what? I got to suck it up, buttercup, and I have got to figure this out. So I started being the first person to practice, the last person to leave, running wind sprints hard instead of kind of dogging it and going through the motions. I, I started lifting weights. I started running four miles a day because I was like, I am going to be a starter. Like I am tired. This is my senior year. This is my last chance. I'm never going to play it in college because I can't even make first string in high school. And so it was the first time in my life I just said, I've got, it's, if I'm, if it's to be, it's up to me, as the old motivational quote goes. And there's truth to that. So I had to step it up. And so, uh, first game of the year, I did not start. It was the third game when finally I started returning punts and because other people were making mistakes. And I started as a cornerback uh, covering passes and uh, end arounds. And um, so my practice jersey was number 17. Ah. So I remember it because that practice jersey, it's what I did in practice. It's what I did in practice that mattered if I got in the game. Gotcha. So, so I just, you know, what I, the premise of the book is if you make at least 17 minutes of progress every day, you'll feel good about yourself. You'll feel like you did something. Now, I, my goal is to sit my butt down and write or write letters to producers and directors or people who could influence my movie and bring it to life. I really want to do an hour or two. But if I committed and I said, I'm going to do an hour or two every day, I wouldn't do it. They'd be right. days, it'd be too many days. It's too much. My goal is to sit my butt down and do something today. 
and hopefully get caught up in it that I just keep going. Your success was because you were different or you were successful despite the fact that you were different. So. No, I think, I mean, if you look at just the speech contest, if we use that as the metaphor, you know, I didn't enter the speech contest to win. I entered the speech contest because I had a day job and I had a keynote and I wanted to get paid. I want to be a full-time keynote speaker. So <laughs> I had to make it more valuable in order to get paid to do it. So I joined the contest because I wanted to focus on the stories I was already telling. My mentors, uh, Dave Fitzgerald said, Darren, stop trying to find that story and instead take the stories you already have and make them so good someone will pay to hear them. And that was like, what? I just thought, here's the story, but realizing that there's a structure to a story, there's an order to a story, there's emotions in the story. I That wasn't even on my radar screen. So it, he was saying, make the story world-class. And so I joined the contest in order to do that. Um, but when I had worked on the stories I was telling to make them better, to put them back in my keynote, then I finally got to the championship and I had to write a third new speech. And I, I was out of good stories to work on that would fit the contest format. And so Mark Brown said, okay, choose a child in your life. So Mark was my coach. He was the 1995 world champion and he was coaching me. And I'm like, where do I start? I've never written a seven minute speech from, from, <laughs> from scratch. And so he said, okay, choose a child in your life. And so I don't have any children. I chose my eldest nephew, Michael. And he said, if you were going to die tomorrow, what one lesson that you learned from your life would you want to pass on to Michael to help him through his? And so that forced me to go deeper. So I think, and, and that's part of my, my message here is that your inner weirdo, you got to find them. And as you say, embrace them. And so I remember just writing out three pages of ideas. He said, write down every idea, every lesson learned, and then you got to narrow it down to one. What are you going to be known for? And so number one, I got a coach, which I had never gotten a coach before that year. And I had two coaches in the championship. And Mark, though, asked me that question. And to find out what was the story in me, what was the lesson learned in me? Because we get every year as champions, we get people in the contest. What's the winning formula? What subjects, the hot subject? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know your life. Because they're looking out there. They're not looking in here. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to deliver that story, just like the legends idea, you got to deliver your story, not copy somebody else's. Right. We see a lot of that in the contest. Um, but what really hit me was like the, the third page, three quarters of the way down, I wrote that I became a comedian because I was willing to fail. Uh. And most people aren't. And so the working title of Ouch was willing to fail. And if we go back and look, you know, I didn't even know that uh, John Maxwell had written a book, Falling Forward or failing forward or something like that. I didn't even know that was out there. I was just going into my story. And so what I talked about was a universal message. Mm -hmm. But I found my way from my life to tell that universal message that's been said many times in many different ways. But I found my weirdo, my way to say it from my experience and I delivered it with all the passion I could just to, to, to tell Michael, to tell my nephew. And so Mark had said, put him in the fourth row and just deliver it to him like it's your last time and just let everybody else eavesdrop. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think all of those factors are what really separated me. And I worked harder than most people. I won't say harder than everybody. I don't know how hard everybody else did. But I had also been working, you know, doing stand-up since 92. So I had a lot more experience than most people in the contest, even though I wasn't a highly paid professional. I still had a day job. But because I listened to those mentors early on, stage time, stage time, stage time, every time I got on stage, if I bombed, I learned a lesson. If I did good, I learned a different lesson. But I think it's that experience that you have to embrace, your own personal experience and be willing to fail. So I think what's separated me and people are still talking about my speech two decades later, I would have never seen that coming. But because my intention was so deep to help my nephew, I think that's why I stood out. And I just prepared, like I went to all the world champions. I asked them all for advice. Otis Williams Jr. uh, said, um, he said, be so good, the only question is who comes in second. Be so good, the only question. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the speech contest, judging is subjective. It's not like Mm -hmm. you see in the Olympics where, you know, you do this, there's this many points. You know, it's, it's more subjective which is harder, so harder to judge and harder to stand out. So he was saying, look, separate yourself from the pack. And so I was trying to figure out my question to myself was, what's my 11? On a scale of one to 10, what's my 11? So I came up with the idea of falling because I studied 10 years of contests. I watched uh, nine contestants, 10 years, that's 90 world-class speeches. And I watched them over and over again and I was like, what's the thing difference between a person who came in first and a person who came in second? But in all my studies, I had seen people go down to a knee, but I had never seen anyone go all the way down and fall. And I said, that's, that's how I'm gonna stand out. So I went to the other world champions. I said, hey, here's my idea. David Brooks said, you might win by it, you might lose by it, but you've gotta stand out. And just like the definition of weirdo, it's that unconventional. You know, and then of course people since then had tried to copy my idea and adjust it slightly, but I asked myself, what's my 11? What's my unconventional use of stage, use of characters? What is gonna separate me from the pack? And then David Brooks also said, let no one out prepare you. Right. So often I was like, okay, I got it, good enough. Then I'd hear David's quote, ah, okay. I'm not done yet. There might be some other tweak I could make. So I think it was the weirdo that I was willing to work harder than anybody else or, or harder than most people, I should say. I was willing to get coaching, which I had never before done. And thank God I sought advice from people who are where I wanted to be. You know, you want to be the world champion, go to world champions. You want to be world class, go to world class. You know, right. just like write it that first, I don't even know where the thought came from, probably from listening to the Brian Tracy tapes over and over again. But what got me to go ask the comedian for advice? I'm assuming it was those tapes and go to people where you want to be because they think differently about that subject. They might not know everything, but that subject they know because they have success there. So champions, headliners, experts in any area think differently but if you want to get what they got you go to align your thoughts with their thoughts and mm-hmm. your habits with their habits true very 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 true um if somebody wanted to get in touch with you learn from you hmm. where do they go 
Uh, well, two quick options. Uh, if you give presentations, uh, you might check out beasponge.com. I have a free PDF, the top 10 speaking mistakes and the top 10 virtual mistakes. So beasponge.com. And if you want to know about the new book coming out, um, it'll be out in September or October. And it's just uh, go to 17, the number 17, minutes to your dream.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Darren, for your time and generosity. I appreciate it. I'll put that information in the show notes so those who are interested can look it up. Thank you for listening to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where we debunk the myth that weirdo is a four-letter word. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Share it with a friend and leave a tip if you like the show.